case file number 4.3, The Weird Wide Web, Part 2, observed by Agent Grenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. You know what a recursive backronym is? Recursive backronym? Yes. I'm assuming it's a backronym that comes back. Yeah, something like that. So do you know what a backronym is? No, actually. A backronym is an acronym that was generated after the abbreviation. Oh, so like literally everything we we do in ESSA. Yes, pretty much. My example was actually the the Colbert uh, treadmill that they put up on the ISS. Yeah. Way back when. You start with something and then you figure out what goes into those letters. And then a recursive acronym is an acronym that refers to itself. One of the f- most famous one is GNU. GNU is not Unix. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so GNU is not Unix. What does GNU stand for? GNU is not Unix. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> our first stop on part two of our HTTP breakdown is what I believe is our first recursive backronym we've run into so far on the podcast. What, what is that? So. We're going to talk about PHP. Hmm, Okay. PHP was originally developed by a Danish-Canadian programmer, Rasmus Lerdorf, in 1994. And this goes back to the stuff that we were talking at the tail end of part one, where you want to be able to dynamically generate sites based on user input, programmatic, or the user itself. Right. So you need some way of regenerating the HTML that the browser sees. Well, PHP does that on the server side by taking the arguments, reprocessing them. They could use the CGI mechanism, the CGI mechanism we mentioned in part one, or this is one of the first things that really shimmed into the web server itself. If you run Apache, like mod rewrite is something like that. Mod security, mod PHP. The web server passes it directly into the module rather than it going through a common gateway interface and executing a different program. Okay. It's a better way. It scales better. It lets you do all kinds of security stuff, mostly. Right. So it's it's a better way to go, and that's the way we pretty much always do it now, those kinds of things now. So PHP originally stood for personal homepage, but what the acronym PHP officially stands for now mm-hmm. is PHP Hypertext Preprocessor. Nice. So, so because it's not the original name, it's a backronym. Mm-hmm. And because it's recursive, it's a recursive backronym. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I follow you. <laughs> hey, man. I had, <laughs> I, had, I had to find some tricksy way to open this up. This is, this is like um, like fractals. <laughs> yes. Just like constantly within itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, the joke is when you open up a dictionary and look at the definition of recursion, it says C recursion. <laughs> 
So the company Zen Technologies develops PHP and has for a while now, since pretty much the, the version after the original release. Mm-hmm. Um, and it iterated a few times and got to PHP 4 in 2000. And that became kind of what everybody used. And in fact, in 2004, when they came out with PHP 5, about four years later, to, there was an initiative in the whole community to get people to move from 4 to 5. Hmm, okay. They were going to end support for PHP 4 in February of 2008. And they wanted everybody to go to PHP 5 because of a lot of, there was a lot of enhancements, but they, the big thing that's really going to come into things that we talk about a little bit later in the episode is encapsulated queries. It created a much better, much safer way of dealing with database interaction. Okay. And we'll go into exactly what that means when we get to the SQL injection section. So in PHP 4, this is kind of a little bit of a story of things that can go wrong in big open source projects. There was a very large development community. A lot of people used PHP for a lot of things. PHP BB was a bulletin board system that was everywhere. WordPress runs on PHP. Lots of stuff runs on PHP. So they're like, hey, lots of people use this. We're cruising. We have a mm-hmm. lot of support, a lot of enthusiasm. But one of the problems that they had was because they were so widespread, they didn't have like a niche thing that were being used in, in, for a lot of professional projects. Right. Multi-language support ends up being really important. So it didn't natively support Unicode characters. Okay. So there were ways of making it work, but like it was not natively dealing with with strings as Unicode. They were dealing Mm -hmm. with strings as strings, which can be problematic when you're trying to do multiple things with them. Right, yeah. So they started this big project in about 2005 to convert everything to natively use UTF-16 Unicode. Mm -hmm. Well, they made some progress. They never really finished. Some of it was developer support fall off and just lack of enthusiasm. And the problem being a little bit bigger than I think that they expected. Yeah. In 2009, they still hadn't finished. So they took some of the stuff that they did and they incorporated it with the stuff that they hadn't ported over and they released PHP 5.3. And they did subsequent releases up through like 5.640, I think was the last release. And that was the very last release on January 12th, 2019, when they ceased support and development. Well, maybe not support, but development on PHP 5. Mm, okay. So you have PHP 5 that was released in 2004, mm. got a major release in 2009, and was a thing that continued to be supported into 2019. So there's a lot mm. of entrenched code here. But they also released in 2014 a significant refactor as PHP 7. Okay. So their rules and releases, and this is a good rule, is that if you change a major release, you have to change the major release number if things are not going to be backwards compatible. That makes sense. Yeah. You can do that in a couple of, you could probably even say, no, we go up by a by a 10 version number if we're, if things are no longer going to be backwards compatible. Right. But you make your own rules, but stick by them. This was a major release. It fixed a lot of things. It ran a lot faster but it broke a lot of backwards compatibility stuff. Mm, okay. So that's what's in use now. PHP 8 was released in November 2020, and they broke backwards compatibility a little bit more. They revised syntax, and everybody's supposed to be running on PHP 8 at this point. But there's still a lot of stuff that people use that runs on PHP 5. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've experienced this, but 
in Red Hat based distributions. I've, I've experienced this with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, AWS, Linux 2, and CentOS. Natively, if you just load PHP, it loads PHP 5. You actually have to go yeah. to their expanded software library to load PHP 7 or PHP 8. I think now with Red Hat 8, it natively loads okay. Python 3.6, but Python was the same thing with like every iteration before that it was uh, 2.7, right. even though and, like 3.6 had been out for years and years. Yeah, and, and there was a major effort to get everybody off of 2.7 mm -hmm. years before. My first real crack at trying to learn Python from having been a Perl jock for way too long was right at that transition period. And I was like, I can't keep the two versions straight while I'm trying to learn this stuff because, yeah. Yeah, well, it's very difficult to, yeah, especially when you're learning, because when I learned to write my connection broker, I wrote it in three, but pretty much every tutorial was 2.7. And so yeah. that was still in the midst of like libraries getting ported over and everything. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and at that time, there's another big deal and because this is all similar problem. In Python, it was bigger deal because you had all of the library support, which had to catch up to Python 3 yeah. and Python 2. But like for all the great value that, that is open source, and I'm not trying to be a source of FUD because I've brought open source and Linux to multiple Fortune 500s at this point, like been one of the small core of advocates that kind of got things started at a couple of different places. But I believe the saying that I've used is, open source is only free if your time has no value. Yeah, yeah, very true. <laughs> but as it turns out, there was a commercial option. Microsoft said, hey, this PHP th stuff is a thing that people seem to really need. So they wrote basically their own version of it called Active Server Pages, ASP, in 1996. You know, I actually didn't know that's what ASP stood for. <laughs> yes. And it does functionally the same kind of thing as PHP, as in it is a server-side dynamic generator of web pages. Instead of being its own language like PHP is, it would run Microsoft's bedeviled VB script. There may be people out there that love it. I've never met yeah. one, but I hate it. <laughs> um, yeah. JScript and Perlscript through Komodo's venerable active Perl module, which has saved my life more than a few times. Hmm. So they, they released it for IS3, IS4, and IIS5 subsequently. And um, it was a big deal. A lot of professional development environments used it because this is at a point in time when open source, getting a, an organization to spend money to develop on PHP actually wasn't easy because mm -hmm. everybody was afraid of using open source at the time. So you have a lot of projects that people are paying or are spending development money on doing ASP and then later ASP.NET, which started in 2002, which was the next logical successor of right. original ASP. ASP.NET and the .NET framework tightly integrated. This has some advantages in client server applications to web applications because they mm -hmm. use the same languages. I remember when I started one of my colleges, it was using a, like an ASP plugin to connect us to remote desktop into like a a VMware interface to get to our like VMs for our classes and stuff like that. This was at the point where like, you know, you were supposed to disable all that stuff. So it's like you would get 10, 10 warnings flashing up in Internet Explorer being like, you really sure about this? But that does show off one of the great things about that tight integration is that .NET could call Microsoft native functions directly instead of 
having to execute an external program. And that made integrating those kinds of things much easier than with a system that wasn't integrated with the, with the whole Microsoft ecosystem. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. As much as we want to slam them for that and the ASP backwards compatibility problems and stuff have caused more than a mm -hmm. few lock-in problems. Yeah, Microsoft's really good at like having stuff that just like all works together in their wheelhouse, like, you know, like Active Directory with all their components and tying into the smart card authentication, stuff like that. But it's like the moment you bring anything in from the outside, it's just off the rails. Yeah, I actually ran into a certificate authentication problem where the structure of the certificates that Microsoft does is a little bit weird. And yeah, yeah, yeah. the structure of the certificates we were using was based on the structure that the government uses for its PIV cards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And those don't work straight unless you do some cluginess to get the user principal name stuff to line up. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, really quite frustrating. Yeah, it's really annoying because when I was doing it for Linux and using like government PIV badges, mm -hmm. yeah, getting trying to get the username off of it on Linux is just horrible because yeah. it's like, I don't know like, you know, where this is. So you just popped up as like username. Um, the vendor lock-in thing is a very real problem. I know of several applications that essentially are boat anchors. They like people can't get off of them because they use them, but an only way to really make any changes to them is completely refactor them. And they're in ASP or ASP.net. Yeah, I mean, we still have software that runs in um, Cobalt. So well. I'm pretty sure the whole Social Security Administration lives on Cobalt. Library of Congress is all all Cobalt because I had a professor that used to work there, and he was like, "Yeah, no, one guy wrote it all, and like he's still there making buco bucks because he's the only one that knows how it works." Of course. Well, the last ASP note is backwards compatibility is a significant problem. Up until IIS seven, if you wrote different parts of the site in different versions of ASP unless you had a third party thing that brokered the sessions, they wouldn't share mm -hmm. sessions. Really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all kinds of extra problems, like getting the site running isn't bad enough. You have yeah, uh, that's rough. all of that fun. So these are server-side generated mechanisms for dynamically generating pages. And for pretty much every dynamically generated site, you have some way of looking up data. And that's pretty much always been a database of some kind. Right. Nowadays, things are a little bit different because uh, because you might see something much like our website where it's client-side scripting and the data comes via API. Mm -hmm. But the important stuff is actually the database queries. If we're talking about SQL injection, those are the database queries we're worried about. And tons of stuff is still working on relational databases. And we started working from relational databases. Yeah. Do you know much about SQL and SQL injection? I remember I sat down and learned like a very little bit of it when I was going to school. And like, I've never been a database person. Fun fact, I just had to redo one of my trainings. And there are about like 30% of the questions are like SQL based. And like each question, I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like next, <laughs> like that's a failed question right there. Like hopefully the next one's a gimme. Oh, wow. Anytime I have to do anything, I mean, I don't even use SQL anymore. I have one application that uses Oracle as its backend. And then most of my other stuff uses Mongo, which I guess is a derivative of like MySQL. Uh, no, no. Mongo is a document database. It's a very different. Oh, is it? a, yeah, it's a very different. Oh, okay. 
Um, okay. I, and we'll not go into like the ins and outs of the difference between a relational mm-hmm. and document database, but they are completely different ways of looking at at the same data management problem. Okay. Yeah. See, this is how little I know. But yeah, I, I always have to Google like even basic things like how do I create a user in this freaking thing? And then, yeah. you know, go and do it, exit and don't do it again for like six months. And you should totally forget. Yep. Being a DBA sometimes can be kind of a black art. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still not great. Recently, I dealt with a couple of things where where folks had built their LAMP applications and were like, why is this running so slow? And I'm like, oh, you built it on MySQL like five years ago and never upgraded the database engine that the, that it uses. And you never tuned the database to use more memory and all of this stuff it's, it's complete black art unless you've had to do it and you've had to like bang your head against it. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like trial and error. I think, didn't I do an episode on Greylog? Like, yes, you did. At some or, point. Well, Gorilla Log, and we talked about Greylog a lot, but it was about logging. Okay, but yeah, like just recently I learned that one Elasticsearch is really only supported on SSDs. They do not support it at all on platter disks, really? which I've been I using. Yeah, that. yeah. I actually, I, I got in touch with the Greylog folks and we did like some conferencing because they were looking at why my Greylog instance was kind of going haywire. And another thing was that in the Elasticsearch configuration, you can specify the amount of RAM to give to Java mm-hmm. right at the start, which is another thing that like I w- would have never yeah. known to look at. Oh, it's, it's even more complicated in every database system I've used, except for probably Microsoft SQL. Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit less work with those. So I may not, I, I, there might've been things, knobs to tweak that I didn't get into or only did once and don't remember much about. Cause it's, it's not just how much memory do you have? It's how much memory am I reserving for parts mm-hmm. of a join? So you have two pieces of a query and you're stitching them together. Yeah. There's a specific amount of memory reserved for that as well as other stuff. It's, it can get complicated fast. Yeah. Luckily nowadays, there's a lot of good advice out there for like, use this template. If you have eight gigs of memory instead of four, just double everything. Yeah. <laughs> but to actual SQL injection, it's important to know in relational databases, you're using structured query language, SQL. And the structure of an SQL statement is important for SQL injection. Mm-hmm. You can actually SQL, do SQL injection for any of the major data interaction, select, insert, update, and delete. But mm. we're going to talk about select, which is the read one, like read this right. stuff. So select, and then you tell the columns that you want. And for mm. lazy people, they just put asterisks, although that is slower if you're worried about performance. And then you talk about the table that you want it from. This is a simple query. It was you know from and then the table name. And then mm. after that, you have where and whatever filter criteria you have, right? Yeah. Well, for a SQL injection, what you're doing is you as the user, in assuming nobody nobody did any kind of security, is able to write to part of that where clause directly. Mm-hmm. Nobody's doing anything to stop you. So any part of the filter that's after where you get to write to, you can kind of say, nope, you can terminate the end of the query right there. And the system won't process the rest of it. So you'll get things like where you know something equals, and then you put a wildcard in there or mm-hmm. Actually, sometimes it doesn't matter because you can say, or one equals one. If you say one equals one, it's yep. tautological true. And it's like, oh, well, it's, you know, everything matches and it'll dump the entire table. So like- that was, that was pretty much always the example when like learning SQL injection was that one equals yeah. one. One equals one equals A, zero equals zero are really common to see. 
And like the most common the example is, oh, you're you're baking a query, a star query to the users table. Well, one equals one, and now I get your entire users table. And if you mm-hmm. didn't hash your passwords, I have your plain text passwords. Right. And they're like, and who would do that? Well, I mean, and I guess it was around 2010, 2011, I believe Gizmodo got their database dumped and there were plain text passwords in it. <laughs> so big site, not that long ago. I feel like yes. we've also seen that, like not in that large of a scope, but mm-hmm. like local government databases. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a big one. This is part of what can result from port password handling. There, yeah. There is a difference between here's a bunch of plain text passwords and here's a bunch of hashes. It's always fun when you get an email, when you're resetting your password and mm-hmm. like, it shows you like your old password in clear text in the email and you're like, hey. Uh, not only did you send this over in clear text, mm-hmm. but that indicates that you're not storing this securely. That's the more <laughs> yeah, important exactly. thing. The important part about this is that when you're handing the database processor a string that is your SQL statement and you can write directly to it, you can kind of rewrite it not any way you want, but you there's a fair bit of latitude in what you can do with it. There's even mm-hmm. ways of making it execute subqueries inside that is the actual query you want to you want to make and then have it output through the other query. Right. The better you are at SQL foo and doing you know obfuscated SQL stuff, the better off you are in doing those things. But the most important thing is being able to write directly to the query. Right. And one of the thing, big deals about what PHP 5 did is what's called encapsulating a query, where instead mm. of saying, I'm writing this entire thing, the string directly to the database, I'm breaking up the query into the separate chunks of the query, and you're only writing to one value in here. And that restricts some stuff, and then you restrict some of the characters that are allowed so you aren't using SQL restricted characters, and you can significantly decrease the risk factor of SQL injection. Mm -hmm. But one of the other big risk factors when SQL injection was was in its heyday was Microsoft SQL servers had Mm -hmm. a database function that allowed you to execute commands on the database server. Nice. So if you could get it to implement the CMD underscore exec function, Mm -hmm. run stuff on the database server through a SQL injection. I remember um, too, like when I was going through like some online courses, doing the basic SQL injection, and then you know, obviously, you get the the output spat back at you, and like you know, obviously, a common control to that is just don't have that verbosity, you know, because you could query it and get like certain messages telling you exactly what SQL server they were running, the Apache version stuff like that. But then like doing the blind SQL injection, where it was like mm-hmm. literally just fire crap at it, and you're like, ah, what if it's working? <laughs> Yeah. Well, if it's open source, then you can run your own server and you can look at your logs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's not that's no longer blind. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was like I think one of them was like you just fired things at it, and when you got it right, the server went down. So you're like, <laughs> hey, I did it. I win. Yep. That's great. So the next kind of important stuff about the structure of how HTML is handled and where hackery comes from is the domain object model. Hmm. Have you heard? Well, I'm sure you've heard of this, but do you have a good picture of, of what the DOM is? You might have to explain it to me because I remember learning it in class, but yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I don't mean to put you on the spot. It was just <laughs> this is a podcast with two participants, so I'm trying to throw stuff I can to you. Yeah, I, I remember. I think I think it was like one PowerPoint, and I was like, "Hey, this is the definition. This is what it is." And I was like, "Cool, I won't remember that unless I actually have to go into it for some reason." So, what the domain object model is is it's the the structure of the web page that the browser uses to render the web page, and if you look at the way that tags are in HTML in any SGML derived language, mm -hmm. uh, XML and HTML are what the browser generally does, does this stuff with. It allows you to have a tree, tree view because you'll have like the HTML and the close HTML tag. And then right. the, you'll have the head tag and the, and the close of the head tag. And, and that's going to be one leaf on the tree, just like you have a directory in Explorer. As long as the psychopath hasn't ran it and not used tabs at all. So the tabs aren't important for the when the browser parses it. Oh, yeah. No, I meant for readability. Yes, for readability, because mm -hmm. some people are awful and don't do indent. But then again, you could have holy war. What in Silicon Valley, a guy broke up with his perfect programmer girlfriend because she used four spaces instead of two. I mean, that's justifiable. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, if she used Emacs, that might be something. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, the relationship would have never, never started at a point. Actually, I, I, I did date a girl who used Emacs and I used VI and we finally figured out what it was. Sysadmins tend to use VI more and programmers tend to use Emacs more. She's mm. a much better programmer than me. What is it? Is it just like like color added to it and like autocomplete and stuff like that? I think it actually has to do with the macro functions versus some mm. of the ability to do find and replace stuff. Okay, yeah, because I mean, the only reason yeah. I use them over straight VI is for colors. Yeah, well, but Emacs is its own thing. And I guess from my personal experience, I felt the barrier to entry to being able to use Emacs in any useful way was, it took me more effort than I was willing to expend when I knew enough VI to get around. I know a fair bit more now, but I knew enough. Emacs to me was the equivalent of people that are really, really good with Excel, <laughs> like tables within tables and like do all this fancy magic. And I'm like, man, I just two columns data like that's all, that's all i need yeah uh, enough of, uh, enough uh, you know editor rant tangent i'll bet you everybody's like well why aren't you using nano but the dom back to the dom mm -hmm. so everything within an xml or html page can be represented in that hierarchy right and if you've ever done some JavaScript stuff where you've modified a, a page inside it, you're actually accessing the DOM when you do it. So you, when you use the function like get element by ID, it's finding where in the tree that is and editing right. that chunk in the, in, the, in the tree. So every browser uses the DOM and it's basically the data presentation of what's being rendered in your browser. Mm -hmm. So there can be sensitive information in there, which is why in 95, Netscape Navigator 2.02 introduced what's called the same origin policy. Mm -hmm. So it restricts access to the DOM to the same service that provided it. And it has to be the same protocol, HTTP versus HTTPS, it has to be the same host, and it has to be the same port. Okay. Apparently, from my research, there have been situations, I didn't try and test this and find out which ones did and which ones didn't myself. But if you have, if you specify explicitly a port 80 and you use the implicit port 80, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, depending on the browser. Oh, interesting. And I didn't do any testing, so I don't know if that's 
if that was a legacy thing or not. But cookies have the same set of issues, you know, like session cookies and stuff like that, or session cookies, authentication cookies, possibly cookies that are stored that have sensitive information in them. Like a bank could store like your account number in plain text as a cookie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, there's nothing stopping them from doing it. And I'm sure that somebody's made that mistake. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's not governed by the same origin policy, but cookie policies operate in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different because you can specify the scope of a cookie when you make it. And this allows you to break things up. Like if you have auth.foo.com and www.foo.com and it right. does the authentication to auth.foo.com, auth.foo.com gives you a session that is for all foo.com. So, mm, yeah. right. But they found out after a little while that sometimes you don't have the entire web page, all the functional parts of the web page coming from one place. Mm-hmm, right. And they started working on this in 2006, but they tinkered around with it and did drafts and 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 it wasn't accepted by the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, until January of 2014. And a lot of the cloud stuff we do today is really important to, it really relies on what's called cross-origin resource sharing, which allows you to specify your origin policy rather than just assuming that it has to come from the same service. Right. Okay. So these are all of the pieces of the underlying pieces of what cross-site scripting is all about trying to manipulate. So cross-site scripting is essentially somebody providing a link or embedding in the web page itself the execution of some kind of script, some kind of client-site hmm. executable code. Uh, right. It's pretty much the way that it works. So a persistent way of doing this would be if we were both on the same bulletin board system and it was vulnerable to cross-site scripting. I could put something in a post that hid a script tag that would run some JavaScript that I wanted you to execute automatically. So when you went and you looked at that, it would execute what was in the script tag the same way it would in any other part of the web page, And it could pull out parts of what was in your DOM. So you, I could get your user ID and stuff like that. But I could also, because I can also get your cookies, I can also get your session cookies. And I can mm. have the JavaScript execute an API to post that to my destination server where I can see the results. Right. So it is a method for allowing an attacker to read the DOM, both the ability to execute that the script, but also having unsafe stuff in the DOM. Mm-hmm or otherwise executing, well, if you're executing an API call, it's it's it, it's a slightly different thing. It's called a cross-site request forgery. And those are mm-hmm. a little bit fun, but let's finish up with cross-site scripting. The reason why, if you go to Reddit, for example, you don't use straight HTML to embed links or anything like that, but you can put links in. They use mm-hmm. a markup thing called, I think, Fireball. The reason for that is in order to keep people from embedding malicious HTML into Reddit, mm-hmm. they use an engine that basically says, if you're using the bad, or if you're using the or HTML tags, it just won't let you do that. Right. Um, they do have a modifier. I think it's four spaces or something like that, that mm-hmm. allows you to post code, but that yeah, yeah. code comes in as 
as HTML exactly as represented and doesn't get parsed as HTML. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because if we ever get enough listeners to be pedantic, they'll ping me on that. <laughs> so cross-site request forgery is cross-site scripting's cousin. It's very similar, but it's actually executing a, an API request under the context of the victim user. Okay. So one of the things that you could do with that that could be, say, easily monetizable is, let's say I assume you're, you're logged into Patreon. Mm -hmm. I have a Patreon page and I can get you to subscribe to me in a single API query. I don't believe you can do this in Patreon because they put some defenses in this. But if I could just say, you know, make a get request that subscribed you to me mm -hmm. and had you pay for it, then if I could use a cross-site request forgery to get your browser to execute that API query, then you would subscribe to me and I would get your five bucks or whatever it was. Right, yeah. And there's lots of ways you could monetize from this. I've heard of one early on and I haven't researched this, so don't quote me as definitely it happened, but I'm sure things like it have, was a, a buy of, of an iTunes song. Okay. So you host an iTunes song and you can do a cross-site request forgery against a bunch of people that are logged into iTunes from that same browser, which could be, you know, the iTunes application mm -hmm. or their phone or something. And again, there are protections for this, but early on, I remember hearing this story, but I, I haven't vetted it. They, you know, bought the song and the artist, the attacker got to monetize, you know, for the buck that they got like 40 cents of it or something for, for every click that they were able to get. Interesting. Yeah, your example reminded me of something. I was just trying to look it up, but I can't find it. Back in the day, they showed like you know using cross uh, forgery to um, like do logins on different websites like Google and Yahoo. Yeah. So like SQL injection is getting a, is getting a little bit less play, but cross site scripting is still a pretty major thing that goes on nowadays. And cross site request forgery goes on less often, but I feel like it's potentially the more dangerous one of the two. Because mm -hmm. yeah. it's a direct exploitation, it's a direct, potentially direct monetization instead of having to go through capture credentials and then further exploit the system. Right. Yeah. So that's all I wanted to cover this time because we basically progressed up to about 2015, 2016 or so. And a bunch of things happened right around then that we're going to talk about when we wrap all of this up. We'll we'll to spit all of this after the episode potentially, but there were there was a lot of talk about Dom mm -hmm. on this episode, and a lot of talk about cookies. So mm -hmm. all I was picturing was Vin Diesel as Dom from Too Fast Too Furious, but the Cookie Monster in his place, just with like mm -hmm. a, a sleeveless shirt. Oh, so if the Cookie Monster was stealing out of the family cookie jar, would that involve like Vin Diesel driving after him and doing like insane Ooh, car stunts, like a crossover event? Yeah. Oh. That'd be good. That's, that's going to be uh, Fast and the Furious 9, 12, whatever they're up to now. Oh, there's got to be a good name for this. I'm sure we could come up with something. Ah, I'm we'll have it set in LA and involve the California Highway Patrol. Ooh, okay. The chocolate chips heist. <laughs> All right, I like that, yeah. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs one on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.